a joy to be with you again. If you would turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2, and we'll read from verse 19 down to the end of the chapter, Philippians 2, 19 to verse 30. In chapter 2, verse 19, the Apostle Paul takes back up his more formal missionary report. He's done some reporting already in chapter 1 and ended this section in verse 18 by concluding that even if some in Rome preach Christ in order to get back at Paul, in order to place him in more misery, he will continue preaching Christ and he will indeed rejoice knowing that Christ is preached. He then goes on for a long excursus looking at who that Christ is that he preaches. And we've looked at several of those examples in recent evenings. And now in verse 19, Paul picks up his report again and tells something of the plan for the future. The Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you yourself, for you yourselves know of Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I shortly will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The word of the Lord is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing between body and soul, between the, short, the smallest of divisions. Will you pray with me now? Our Father and our God, we thank you that we can come now and read your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God who has given us this word. We ask, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts that to receive such a word, that you would make our hearts that good soil that we hear about in the parable, that when your word is sown, that our hearts may bring forth fruit, some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold, according to your good pleasure. Lord, may our hearts not be hardened, may our hearts not sprout up with quick and rootless faith, but Lord, may you establish your truth within each heart here, we ask. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. In December of 1941, the Allied cause in World War II was at perhaps its lowest point. Nazi Germany and her allies had conquered nearly all of Europe, save for the United Kingdom. Further, at that point, they had pushed east as far as the gates of Moscow. In some two years, Nazi Germany and her allies had conquered as much of Europe 
as the Roman Empire had in 200 years. Two years to conquer such a vast territory. Things looked incredibly bleak. People all throughout Europe had discouragement upon discouragement. Another famous event happened in December of 1941. That was the bombing of Pearl Harbor. On December 7th, 1941, Imperial Japan bombed the U.S. Navy base in Hawaii. And as a result, the United States entered Pearl Harbor. Later that same month, Winston Churchill spoke before the U.S. Senate. And what he said were that the Americans no doubt had heard of the sufferings in Europe. And he said this, that the U.S. has drawn the sword for freedom and cast away the scabbard so that the subjugated Europeans have reason to lift their heads in hope. We see something of this in our passage here today. The Philippian church was similarly discouraged. They had experienced persecution from outside the church with the Roman authorities beginning to increase pressure. They had begun to experience division within the church. And we see some of that in more detail in chapter 4. Further, their beloved apostle and church founder, Paul, was imprisoned in Rome. To make matters worse, the person they had sent to him had been taken ill, and they had heard that his illness was gravely serious. They were a discouraged church. They were a church that had discouragement abounding on every side. They were like those Europeans in December of 1941 who needed reinforcements. They looked around and said, who could possibly help us? And like Winston Churchill said, such an entrance into the war is enough to cause them to lift their heads in hope. That's what we see here is that at the time of the Philippian church's greatest discouragement, Paul wrote to them to encourage them to say, reinforcements are along the way. I'm going to send to you Epaphroditus, and then, Lord willing, I'm going to send Timothy, and then if it should be God's will, Bolivian church, I hope to come to you also. Children, I think you know something of what that's like as well. Is that perhaps you've played a, a sports game before where you've had nine people wanting to play basketball or football or rugby. And as a result, when you have an odd number, you have teams that are uneven. You might have five people on one side and four on the other. And there's no greater hope when you're playing that sport, when you look up and see the tenth member coming to join, that the teams will finally be evened again. There's encouragement and hope that comes from receiving reinforcements at the last minute when you need it. And that's what Paul promised here, that the reinforcements were going to come, that the Philippians could lift up their weary heads and hope in these encouragements. Discouragement is a reality of the Christian life in a fallen world, is it not? Each one of us knows what it's like to be discouraged in our Christian journey. But the wonderful reality of God's plan for us is that He's given us encouraging Christian fellowship. He's given us Christian fellowship to strengthen us and give us a hope along the way. And so that in this passage we might see that God gives us encouraging Christian examples through Christian fellowship. God gives us encouraging examples through Christian fellowship. In my bedroom as a child, there were posters on nearly every wall. Posters of music groups, posters of sports figures primarily. 
And when we think about Christian faithfulness, we think about Christian obedience, and we think about people in our lives who have been an example to us, far too often we can think of them as posters on a wall, as people that we look at it and say, wow, look at Michael Jordan flying through the air, or look at Mrs. Smith and her constant prayerfulness for me. Right? We, we look at these people as the end-all and be-all in themselves. And so along my childhood bedroom, there were all these posters. But on one wall, there was a window. And when we look at these three examples of faithfulness, we see Paul, we see Timothy, and we see Epaphroditus. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus are not like posters on a wall that we should fixate upon. Rather, they are all like that window through which we look unto Christ. That these Christian examples of faithfulness point us to the one who was supremely faithful. That these people are not to be the point to which we look and fixate, but as we look through their lives and gaze upon their faithfulness, let our eyes be drawn to Christ. So we see first here Paul, an example of submission. Paul's example of submission. This is the one that is perhaps easiest to miss, where Paul says first, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Throughout this passage, Paul makes it clear that everything he does is in submission to God first and also into the lives of of others. For Paul, all future planning was done under the submission to what God would have for the future. Some of us may know the famous proverb in chapter 16, that the hearts of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or perhaps in James chapter 4, where we read of God's warning through the apostle there to beware of making plans without first considering what the Lord would have for us. For Paul, this is not simply the same thing as signing off with his email address saying, DV, Lord willing. Or he wasn't simply a, a talk that he talked when Paul said, I hope in the Lord. That was truly what he meant. He submitted all his plans to what the Lord would have for him. Second, not only did he submit to God's plans, but in his discussions of others, he submitted his reputation so that others might be elevated. Nowhere in this passage does he talk about all the things that he has done for the gospel. Instead, he is so willing to elevate the reputation of Timothy and Epaphroditus. He says in verse 20, I have no one like Timothy. He is genuinely concerned for your welfare. And then later on he says of Epaphroditus that Epaphroditus is my fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. In all these ways, Paul was ever willing to submit his own fame, his own praise, and his own reputation so that others might receive the praise and honor. And then third, Paul also submitted his own comfort so that the Philippian church might be cared for. Even from a distance, Paul placed their own well-being ahead of his he was willing to, to send Epaphroditus first and then later to send Timothy, even though Timothy was so useful to him. He cared for them even at a distance, saying in verse 28 that he is the more eager to send him, that is Epaphroditus, so that they might rejoice at seeing him again. We have to remember that at this time, Paul, being under house arrest in Rome, really did rely on his friends there. You see, ancient prisons and even being under ancient house arrest was not like 
prisons that we are familiar with. There was no work program for Paul. There were no three square meals a day for Paul. Paul couldn't go to university by distance while he was in prison. His friends, and on his own dime, were the only way that he was able to even get enough food to eat. And so Paul was willing to part with these people who were supporting him in order that the church at Philippi could be cared for. Paul submits to God's plans for his life, submits his reputation so that others would be exalted, and submits his comfort so that others would be cared for. And again, if we remind ourselves that Paul's example of submission is a window through which we ought to look rather than a poster at which to fixate, does Paul's submission not remind us in some small part of our Lord's submission? The eternal Son who was of equality with God, who learned obedience. The eternal Son who was obedient even to the point of death and that death on the cross. You see, every kind of Christian obedience reminds us either of Christ's obedience unto death or Christ's obedience continually to the law of God. When you see a Christian who is faithful in prayer, let that prayerfulness remind you of your Lord who prayed for His disciples even at the last hour and continues to pray for us now. When you see a brother or sister who is loving, let that remind you of your loving Savior who continually loved His people to the very end and even does so now. Let that window be something through which you look and see Christ. Christ submitted unto death. And Paul's submission points us to that. Second, in verse 19 and following, we see Timothy, an example of selfless love. Paul was an example of submission, and Timothy, an example of selfless love. Listen to how Paul describes his son in the faith. He says, I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Timothy had a selfless love for the Philippian church. He was genuinely concerned for their welfare. We read in the book of Acts in chapter 16 that Timothy was there and likely would have been present for the conversions of that first few at Philippi. Maybe he was right beside Lydia when she came to faith by the river. Maybe he was nearby enough to hear the sounds of the Philippian jailer come to Christ. Maybe he also was there for the time when the Greek slave girl had the demon cast out of her and came to faith. Timothy was there from the beginning. He knew this church in its infancy, and he had matured as a pastor and leader throughout all those years since and had a genuine care unlike anyone else that Paul could send. He had selfless love for the Philippian church. We have to remember that when Paul talks about sending someone from Rome to Philippi, that travel in the ancient world was a difficult and sometimes deadly affair. For us who might travel on planes much longer distances, it is difficult to get our minds around just what kind of sacrifice and selfless mission this would have been. For Timothy, it would have been a 
many weeks long journey, some 1,500 kilometers round trip, either on boat or by foot or some mixture of the two. And so for Timothy, this selfless, genuine love for the Philippian church is demonstrated by his willingness to go. He is not going begrudgingly, but he's willing to go for their service. Second, Timothy showed selfless love in his relationship with the Apostle Paul. Timothy is the exact opposite here as those described earlier in Rome. In verse 15, he says that that some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former, those who are preaching out of envy, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. He says, Timothy is not like those people. Verse 21, those people seek their own interests. Timothy seeks those of Christ Jesus. And so Timothy has a selfless relationship to Paul. When he sees Paul in prison, Timothy is not thinking, now's my chance to get ahead. Paul's in prison. Think of how great this is for my ministry. Think of how this can advance things further and further. Timothy cares for the advance of the gospel and for Paul, his father in the faith. Notice too how how Timothy is described here. He's described as a son serving with a father in the gospel. This is beautiful and wonderful language. In the ancient world, it would have been incredibly common for a son to follow a father into the line of work, into the family business. Whether that was swinging a hammer or turning a wrench or becoming a farmer, a son would have often, if not always, followed their father into it. And Timothy, the young Greek boy who had joined Paul early in the ministry, was now an adopted son in the faith who had apprenticed alongside the apostle for many years and now served with him. Timothy was not merely Paul's personal assistant. Timothy was serving alongside Paul, ministering together with him. His spiritual apprenticeship had proved very fruitful for the Philippian church as well as elsewhere. Timothy was proven. He was tested. He was reliable. He was willing Timothy's selfless love, too, is an example which points to our Lord. Think of Mark 10.45 where we read that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Timothy's selflessness, Timothy's willingness to serve Paul, to serve the Philippian church, to go out of his way to make these things possible is only something he learned from his Lord. And then third, look at Epaphroditus and his sacrificial service. We've seen Paul's submission, Timothy's selflessness, and finally Epaphroditus's self-sacrificial service. Paul writes, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Remember, the Philippian church had been praying for Paul for some time, but had been unable to send a gift to him. They were not able to support him physically in his house imprisonment. And so they send finally Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus is the one who bore the gift to Paul and endured many hardships along the way. And we find out even got sick unto a near death condition. 
But there's something else going on here as well. No doubt the Philippian church had desired that Paul would come and visit them soon. And they thought to themselves, maybe if we can't get Paul, maybe we could send Epaphroditus so that Epaphroditus could relieve Timothy so that Timothy could come back to us. Right? If we can't have the apostle, at least we can get his apprentice. Imagine that you're at a Christian conference and there's a world-famous speaker that you've paid a great deal of money to see. And all of a sudden, at the last minute, you hear that instead, because of a canceled flight or because of an illness, the regular pastor of that church is going to be giving the keynote address. How full do you think that room might be instead? Sadly, probably not very full at all. And so what Paul is doing is he's writing to commend Epaphroditus, saying, do not be disappointed that you're getting Epaphroditus instead of Timothy. Do not be disappointed because Epaphroditus has not failed in his mission. Epaphroditus is not being sent back because he was useless, but because I know he's needed at your church in Philippi. Paul makes it clear that this is a fellow brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, a messenger, and even, maybe the highest title, a minister to Paul. He ministered to Paul in his need. Epaphroditus should not be ashamed that he is being sent back. He should not be ashamed that he had gotten sick. The Philippian church should not think that Paul is rejecting their gift of service, but rather that Paul is saying, I want to share with you this faithful worker in the gospel. The other thing that we might think to ourselves is, can what Epaphroditus did really be called a sacrifice for the gospel? He got sick traveling, didn't he? Can, can we call a, a tummy bug we might get when we go to a foreign country sacrificing for the gospel? Well, I think, again, we need to read this more carefully and closely. What Epaphroditus was doing is he was absolutely risking his life in order to bring support to Paul. We need to remind ourselves, as we have once already, that travel in the ancient world was far more difficult and far more dangerous, especially if you were a Christian. Epaphroditus is willingly going into hostile territory in order to bring this gift of money to Paul. He was willing to go a long way to do so. He was willing to endure difficult circumstances of travel and otherwise. His sickness and persecution and anything else that might have happened happened only because he was willing to risk everything in order to bring this gift to Paul. We see further Epaphroditus' heart that even when he was beginning to be ill and even as he was getting sicker and sicker, his concern was not for his own sickness. His concern was that the Philippian church had heard about it and that they were beginning to despair. They were beginning to think, oh no, we've sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul and now Paul is having to minister to him and what a burden we've created and our beloved Epaphroditus is sick also. Verse 26, he's been longing for the church in Philippi and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Even unto his deathbed, he was concerned for them. So what Epaphroditus was willing to do was Epaphroditus was willing to go this long journey. He was willing to go and take all of the Philippian church's gifts unto Rome so that Paul could be looked after. In John 15, verse 13, we read Christ's words where he said, 
No greater love has anyone than this than a man should lay down his life for his friends. Epaphroditus nearly did this. He walked sick unto death because he was willing to go this way on the journey, to give this gift to Paul, to sacrifice all in order that the gospel should continue. I think one of the clearest examples we see in the life of Christ it takes place in John chapter 19 where Jesus shows just how deeply and how much he cared for his followers. In John chapter 19, as he is on the cross, we read that Jesus at that point was not concerned with his own condition. He was not concerned with what anyone else was doing to him. Instead, he looked out from the cross at that moment where we might have excused him for being concerned with his own state, Jesus looked out and saw his mother. And when he saw his mother, verse 26 of John 19, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. At the moment of his death, or near death, Epaphroditus said, I am concerned that the Philippian church thinks I am ill and thinks that I have let down the side. And at the moment of his death, where he did in fact die, Jesus did not have concern for his own needs, but instead saw the needs of his mother and provided for her one last time. So why do we need these ordinary examples? Why would we have recorded for us a missionary journey and a missionary diary which, which seems so plain, which seem as if we could read about this at any time in church history, not just in the book of Philippians? Why do we, for all time and forevermore, need these ordinary examples? I think there's a few reasons. First, they show us what obedience looks like by giving us first steps in the right direction. We are not told only in chapter 2 to have the mind of Christ, but then in chapter 2, verse 19, we're, we're shown what that looks like in Timothy and Epaphroditus. Beloved, we live in an embodied life. We live in embodied faith. And so why do we need brothers and sisters around us? It's because you need Christ's obedience through the lives of one another. And I need obedience to Christ in your life as well. We need other people following after Christ so that we can see that and be blessed by that. We need to see what it looks like to obey Christ even though we have Christ's perfect example and His perfect life recorded for us. Second, it also is meaningful to see what obedience looks like in your own context. The Philippian church had this man Epaphroditus coming back to them and they would have been able to say, this is what obedience to Christ looks like when you are sick unto death. This is what obedience to Christ looks like when you are going on a journey for the gospel. When we see these things, remember, we must see them as windows. We must see them as things that we look through in order to see the perfect example of Christ. My family has a family photograph that we really love that is picture of us standing in front of the sign at the entrance to Grand Canyon National Park. 
And on that sign it says Grand Canyon National Park and there's a little picture of the Department of Parks. And how tragic would it be if on that holiday to Arizona, that was the only picture and the only thing we did was take a picture by that sign. It would be tragic. We just stopped there and didn't actually see the Grand Canyon itself. We just took a picture by the sign and went home and never did anything more. I've said before that these Christian examples are like windows through which we can see Christ, but they are also like signs. Whenever you're going on a big journey and you're seeing signs that point you to your destination, you don't just stop at the sign. You continue onward. Those signs encourage you in the right direction, but they are not the ultimate destination. Timothy, Paul, Epaphroditus, all these men pointed unto Christ. Their obedience was but a shadow, even though it was nonetheless very real. And so may I just encourage you, in your Christian fellowship, in your Christian relationships, realize the power that your small, imperfect obedience plays in the lives of your fellow Christians. Realize that your small steps of obedience are ways that your fellow brothers and sisters will see Christ working. That they will see Him working in you through your imperfect, irregular prayer life. That they will see Him working in you through the ways that you strive to love others, though they are difficult to love. Realize that your fellow brothers and sisters need you just as you need them. For Christ is still at work in and through His body, is He not? That the head is still at work and still connected to His body, the church. And so He has blessed us by giving us brothers and sisters, which point us back to the source, which point us back to the Savior, who illustrate what it looks like to follow Him and who encourage us in our pilgrimage along the way. Will you pray with me as we close? Our gracious God, we thank You that You have provided a Savior who is perfect. And not only have You provided a Savior who is perfect, but You have also provided a family to which we can belong that You have not left us alone to journey to heaven after salvation, but You have brought alongside of us brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers who've gone before, and indeed many other encouragements also. Lord, may we strive to be those encouragements to others, even as we realize we point only to the One who obeyed perfectly in His life and died as a sacrifice in His death. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.